0: Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast, I'm Kate Moore Youssef your host and if you've arrived here there must be a reason. I'm guessing you're curious to learn more about improving your well-being alongside ADHD or maybe looking for some advice or guidance to feel healthier and calmer. So why start this podcast? I'm a well-being and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and I discovered my own ADHD alongside one of my daughters at the age of 40. And now, after supporting many other women, just like me and probably you, I feel there's a need for more emphasis on well-being and lifestyle help for women with ADHD. And through the podcast, I want to offer you new insights and perspectives to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and balanced life. So wherever you are on your ADHD journey my aim is to support you in finding the awareness and the most aligned tools to enhance your well-being so you can make the most intentional mindset and lifestyle choices moving forwards. Ready to get started? Here's the episode. So hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. And this week I wanted to do things a little bit differently. This is a subject that I know so many of us are interested in and many of us are experiencing as well. And I wanted to do it justice. So I'm doing two episodes this week. I'm doing one right now. And then I'm going to be doing one on Saturday, releasing a bonus episode on Saturday. And the subject is menopause, hormones and ADHD and I think as a woman with ADHD this is inevitably going to crop up in our life whether we have experienced it in earlier life with puberty or maybe during our pregnancy or maybe you are like me and you are heading towards perimenopause and menopause and you are noticing your ADHD perhaps being exacerbated by these hormonal fluctuations So this week, I have got the neuropsychologist, Jeanette Wasserstein, Dr. Jeanette Wasserstein, who is an expert in her field. And I found her because I read her very interesting article on Attitude Magazine. And the article is called Menopause, Hormones and ADHD, What We Know and What Research is Needed. So this, I'm going to link to the show notes. And this basically led me to Dr. Jeanette Wasserstein and the fascinating conversation that you are about to hear. However, Dr. Wassestine is based in America and I know that I have lots of UK listeners as well. So I wanted to bring in a UK expert as well. And on Saturday, you will hear from Dr. Emma Ping, who is a menopause specialist and she understands ADHD from different angles as well. So you'll hear that bonus episode on Saturday where we go into more detail about menopause and how to help ourselves, how to improve our lifestyle and also how to help ourselves with ADHD and the menopause. So you'll see that this conversation definitely leads from today's chat with Dr. Wasserstein. I really hope that these two conversations help you feel more informed and empowered about heading towards your perimenopause and menopause because I know that it's a scary and challenging time for any woman who hasn't got ADHD. But when we have the extra layer of ADHD, I know it can feel very debilitating, suffocating and challenging. So my aim with these two episodes is to really lift the lid on a bit of the jargon, the medical talk. And you will hear that in this episode, Dr. Wasserstein does use medical terminologies, and she says things like OBGYN, which is a gynaecologist here in the UK. We talk about HRT, and she gives it another word, but you'll hear me sort of come in and, and ask about that. So I'm really giving two different perspectives, both of them sort of quite similar, but going into different details about the topics. And I really hope that these two episodes this week you the ammunition that you need to ask the questions to your GP, to ask the questions to your psychiatrist about your medication and whether you want to go on hormone replacement or not. I definitely feel that knowledge is power and the menopause conversations are fantastic. But when we bring in that extra complication, complexity of ADHD, I feel like we do need to have as much information at our disposal. So here is the first episode and Make sure you tune in for Saturday's episode with Dr. Emma Ping. Today, I have a fantastic guest. It's Dr. Jeanette Wasserstein, and she's based in New York. Dr. Wasserstein is a clinical neuropsychologist who has specialized in diagnosis and treatment of ADHD in adults for the past 30 years. She mostly concentrates on treatment of executive function, but also addresses all common morbidities of ADHD. And she's also the founder of the Central Nervous System Support and created the Neuropsych program at the New School for Social Research. So we have someone with a huge amount of experience, many years of working the ADHD field. So I'm so honored and grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And I know that your field of expertise is definitely around sort of hormones and um, menopause and women, but I wanted to ask you, what is neuropsychology? I'm sure there's plenty of, of the listeners out there just
1: wondering, what is that and what does it do? It's a specialty within psychology that focuses on brain behavior relationships, so the relationship between brain function in different brain regions and emotional functioning and cognitive functioning in people. And in so doing, there's a subdivision of neuropsychology which is more clinical, and that's what I'm part of. And in so doing, we deal with patients who have various assaults on the central nervous system, some of which are acquired in adulthood or later like head trauma or strokes, uh, tumors, that sort of thing. And we deal with what's called the neurodevelopmental disorders the things that people are born with and develop, and that's where ADD comes in. So it's a subspecialty within a specialty to be dealing with neurodevelopmental disorders such as ADD. That sounds fascinating. My husband was the person who actually introduced me to a, this co- the idea of adult ADD. He was um, aware of having some struggles with organization and that sort of thing, he executive dysfunction at work. So I give him a book about executive functioning that was written back then. It was in the 90s. And he read the book and he comes back and he says to me, I have ADD. And I guffawed because I said, you can't have ADD. That's a children's disorder. And he said, well, it may be a children's disorder, but I have it. So then I got on top of the emerging literature, then emerging literature in the, early, in the early 90s. They were just beginning to become aware of the fact that children did not outgrow it, that it stayed with them more often as not and took a different form, was less obviously hyper, but uh, definitely continued in terms of the attention regulation problems and the executive function problems, which in some ways became more pronounced because the demands on um, executive ability to do it and use one's executive functioning increases in adulthood.
0: What you mentioned then about it mostly being in childhood and we went to outgrow it. And now I, I'm sandwiched between two brothers and they were both diagnosed early on in life. And I would say my my younger brother was probably diagnosed mid to early nineties, my older brother was diagnosed very early on, I think late 80s. And I don't even think ADD or ADHD was mentioned in women and girls then. I don't know. I was a young girl as well. But I know I've had ADHD all my life. But I look so different to my brothers. I was quiet, conscientious. I kept myself to myself. My brothers were like bouncing off the walls. And I was very shy, very, very shy and wouldn't say boo to a goose. I was daydreaming all over the place. And it was only until I had my own children and I've got three girls and a boy, but it was one of my girls that I started to notice very similar traits to me when I was growing up. I mean, I don't remember not being able to sit still to study, but I do look back at all my old reports and it says, Kate's very chatty. Kate could do with focusing more. Kate doesn't hand her homework in on time and all these little things. But because I was so well behaved and i was so polite and I wasn't disruptive and I look back and I think the help that I could have had at school, university, all the things, you know, looking and I, I left one of my early career in public relations because it was so fast paced and it was so all consuming that it was just too overwhelming for me. And, and I say my, my nervous system, like you, you're an expert on the nervous system, but I felt that there was something going on very deep within that was preventing me from coping with so everything that was going on. So I had to make everything a bit more simple in my life. Again, I didn't know I had ADHD. So it's interesting. And I know that I, from my clients who I speak to, there's a lot of ambition and drive and um, excitement towards their careers, but they can't seem to cope with the level of intensity of their careers. And so I just wondered if, if I guess it's a very long winded question, but when did we start noticing that ADHD could be
1: prevalent in women and girls. Back in the, I think, again, it was the 90s, um, maybe the 80s, is when they first started noticing, hey, girls have ADHD. It's not just that guys have a disproportionate three-to-one ratio of ADHD, but rather that girls have ADHD with high frequency, but it has a different manifestation. It's more the inattentive type, the dreamy. Hyperverbal is one of the major uh, manifestations of the hypokinesis, which is much diminished in in women. Anyway, so that is your textbook in that regard, in that girls with inattentive ADD were, ADHD either way, um, were missed as having an issue, even once we recognize that it exists. But the people who made it more public awareness where the is a, a man and a woman a neurologist team. So, and they wrote some of the early work that talked about girls in inattentive ADD and how it was missed. Not seeing it till adulthood, seeing it in, and this is men and women, you see it in your children. A lot of parents will see it in their children and then they go, and then the kids will get diagnosed and then they'll say, gee, I still have or i certainly had those same symptoms as an adult so that's another way that that they first get diagnosed in adulthood because they see it in their kids and then they put two and two together and realize that they have it as well and then the underlying issue is the male to female ratio a lot of it has to do with the manifestation in girls being more inattentive for whatever reason but that may also be hormonal but the flip testosterone, not surprisingly, may increase the manifestation of the impulsivity and the hypokinesis. So it's no surprise that the disruptive boys are recognized more often as having this problem. And in childhood, when there is this unbelievable developmental delay or lag, in this case, it really is a developmental delay that they've documented through long-term monitoring of the same kids with ADD and comparing them to the non-ADD or what we call neurotypical kids and their MRIs. And what they find is that there is literally a three, somewhere in the window of two to four with three the average delay in the maturation, the myelinization of the inhibitory systems of the brain, the frontal regions of the brain during childhood. That means that the inhibitory control of a 10-year-old with ADD in terms of the neural pathways underneath is more like that of an eight-year-old, seven-year-old. Mind-boggling at that age to have a three-year delay Yeah, uh, and explains why these kids have such a hard time in school, even if they're brilliant. Now, I don't know. Girls don't have as much of an inhibitory control problem as a group, although there certainly are girls who do. Um, But... The control of attention is also, a, it's certainly a self-control uh, function in many ways. Um, so anyway, I digress.
0: Yeah, no, and it is it's fascinating to be able to, to see the difference and just the way you're painting that picture. And I, I've seen it 100% with my brother's. With friends of mine who've, who've children have got ADHD, and I there is an immaturity there, you know, however you want to call it, which can at least so many detrimental impacts to their life. The rejection, the teasing, the bullying, just feeling like an outcast. I mean, there's there's so much, and it is heartbreaking to see. And I think with girls, when you said about the excessive talking, I remember being told by my dad, and I don't think he'll mind me saying this, but I'll oh, stop talking nonsense, stop gibbering, like all different things. And I see it with my daughter, she's like, blah, blah, in my ear the whole time. And I just, I'm, I do say to her, I say, you know, you just have to have a bit of quiet time now, like just a little, it's okay to not talk. But I have to be really careful, because I don't want to say things to her that are gonna stick with her. So it's hard being an ADHD parent, managing an ADHD child, because you can see so many traits of yourself Hi everyone. So I know I'm not the only woman with ADHD who really does need their sleep, but often struggles to either fall asleep or just stay asleep. And much to my husband's frustration, very often I have all sorts of rituals to help me get to sleep better, which include a bedside table full of different sleep sprays, earplugs, magnesium tablets, and essential oils. However, the most important element for me to getting a good night's sleep has always been my bedding, especially my pillows. And yet there's something new that I've been trying, which has been a real game changer in helping calm my anxious mind and really settle my body in for a good night's sleep. And this is the Silent Night Wellbeing Weighted Blanket. And wow, I am definitely a convert now. So the Silent Night Wellbeing Weighted Blanket has been designed to calm and ease stress and anxiety, and it's got a deep touch pressure stimulation. And this is something occupational therapists have been using for ADHD for years and have reported really positive results. So the weighted blanket can help to relax the nervous system by giving this gentle sensation of being hugged and easing you into a deep and restful sleep. And just wrapping yourself in the blanket increases happy hormones and decreases stress to improve our mood, which so many of us need. So the blanket's weight comes from thousands of natural glass beads stitched within and it creates an even spread of gentle soothing pressure and the weighted blankets are available in three different weights starting from three kilograms which is for children, then 6.8 kilograms and then nine kilograms and this whole well-being collection of weighted blankets, amazing pillows is available at sleepypeople.com. So as I mentioned, there's lots of other wellbeing bedding options on sleepypeople.com. And this includes a silent night wellbeing, cool touch pillow, which is just so cooling, especially if you're going through perimenopause or menopause. They've got a wellbeing lavender scented pillow, which is just gorgeous because lavender can help you fall asleep. They've got a wellbeing copper pillow, a Silent Night Wellbeing Rebalanced Pillow and Duvet Set and a Silent Night Wellbeing Weighted Eye Mask, which I've tried and absolutely love. And they really understand how busy life can be. So they've made it as easy as possible with this fantastic range of different pillows and duvets and weighted blankets So we can really just optimize our sleep. So I want you to head to sleepypeople.com and you can get 10% off the whole Silent Night Wellbeing collection. That's sleepypeople.com. And you need to type in CALM10, that's C-A-L-M-10, for 10% off the full Silent Night Wellbeing collection. I will put all the details in the show notes, but that's sleepypeople.com and use the code CALM10, for 10% off the full Silent Night Wellbeing collection. And now back to this week's conversation. And I guess this leads me to what I'd like to talk about today is about hormones, and especially in women and girls, how we have these kind of three peaks, haven't we? We've got sort of like puberty, is it childbirth? A pregnancy, the whole period of pregnancy. Yeah, so... I've got girls myself. So puberty, how that shows up. I've had my babies. I've seen, I've actually seen how I felt over pregnancy. Now I felt great over pregnancy, but then, and I was grateful that I didn't get postnatal depression, but I, there was definitely moments where things felt quite dark. And then now I can feel menopause creeping up. So I'm, um, it, I know that a lot of other women will be very interested to understand how hormones play a role in our ADHD fluctuating throughout our lives.
1: You're again um, describing a lot of things that the the science is catching up with or beginning to explain. The, The dynamics and the impact of puberty on ADD, to my knowledge, that's not well mapped out at all. We know that in general, women fluctuate, all women, neurotypical and ADD women, fluctuate in their verbal fluency as a function of where they are, sorry about speaking in scientific ease, depending on where they are in their menstrual cycle. But that, to my knowledge, has not been well mapped out. Where we know much more is what happens in pregnancy, post-pregnancy, perimenopause, and menopause that we know much more about it's the it's a shame about the teenagers but we'll get there but it's it it's that's why i was asking about your experience with uh, teenage uh, girls it's not been mapped out on the one hand it should be better because increasing amounts of estrogen are associated with in increased and enhanced cognitive functioning across the board because estrogen good for neurons and it also modulates and controls the creation of a lot of the very important uh, neurotransmitter substances which relate to mood regulation and attention for those of you who don't know when i'm speaking in scientific ease and talk about neurotransmitter substances those are the chemicals that flow between the neurons and enable basically the smooth functioning of different brain regions so Estrogen is very important for the control of acetylcholine, which is really important for memory, and epinephrine, which is um, pivotal in ADD, and um, serotonin, which is very important in the regulation of emotions and is actually the, the main mechanism that underlies the effect of antidepressants. So that's kind of basic science about what estrogen does and it makes sense in terms of the stuff that I'm about to cover. I don't know where it falls in with puberty because one would think girls would get better during puberty because that's when they're getting an influx of estrogen. On the other hand, that's when a lot of ADD gets diagnosed in girls. So um, how those come together is not clear yet, certainly not in my thinking and and in the science. Certainly when estrogen kicks in, for whatever reason, girls get more depression and anxiety. I don't don't know how that plays out. I don't know if it's about regulation of the underlying nervous system mechanisms not being fully developed. Don't know. But where we do know more is what happens with pregnancy, birth, and um, afterwards. And there <laughs> you're being a textbook case uh, because during pregnancy, what we know is that estrogen just skyrockets. And what we find is that many women with ADD and many women with bipolar illness, frankly, do way better with no medications during pregnancy because the estrogen itself is um, helping the underlying nervous system vulnerabilities. With uh, delivery, there's a sharp drop off of estrogen and other hormones, but mainly estrogen. And that's when you get the mood dysregulation problems. Postpartum depression is one of the most dramatic manifestations. And apparently it's more common in women with ADD. So we're talking about a baseline, perhaps underproduction or underregulation or under response to estrogen before. And then with uh, the delivery of a baby, there may be being a disproportionate uh, reaction to the drop off of estrogen. That's a mechanism I'm positing. In any case, the external observation is that women with ADHD have a higher incidence of postpartum depression than non-ADHD women. And that women with ADHD often can do quite well off medication during pregnancy, which is good news because that's a question that lots of ADD women have, which is now that I'm pregnant, should I continue taking my stimulants? It's not 100% clear whether stimulants are harmful, neutral, or... No, there's no no indication that they're helpful. But whether they might be harmful or neutral during pregnancy, that's the bad news. But the good news is that there's every indication that the natural hormones that your body is producing during pregnancy do a great job compensating for being off the meds. So take that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) Then uh, perimenopause is another weird time hormonally because all of our hormones uh fluctuate all over the place uh during the perimenopause period up down up down and if you look at my podcast I um that I just did with attitude anybody interested can it's reviewing a lot of these same things anyway there's a figure that I think is terrific that shows um what happens with estrogen during the different stages of life and shows estrogen going up um, during pregnancy, dramatically falling off after pregnancy, and then being pretty stable until we get to perimenopause and then it's all over the place again. Uh, so you can have a lot of fluctuations in that period. And women will talk about sort of where perimenopause ends and menopause begins is after the fact diagnosis. You get diagnosed as having had menopause or having being menopausal is when you've been without a period for a year. So until that point, you're impairing menopause when it's going up and down and up and down and up and down. That's a period when many women who are um, kind of borderline ADD their whole life will fall off the cliff. And it's not, it's not on the border anymore. It's like it's gotten to the point where it's very clear. It's also a period where women, even if they've been diagnosed and been taking medication and doing well or pretty well on all their interventions, they may no longer work or they work inconsistently Mm -hmm. because the hormones are fluctuating up and down, in particular estrogen. We don't know much yet about how progesterone affects all these things. The fluctuation in mood Around periods, especially after ovulation. It's a more, I mean, it happens to neurotypical women as well, but again, it's one of those things that happens disproportionately to women with ADD, probably because of the underlying hormonal sensitivities or extremes in production. Uh, that's a well addressed with an SSRI, uh, serotonergic uh, medicine done at the end of the month. I mean, after ovulation. So you do it like two weeks before your period. And that's what they do to regulate the extreme mood fluctuations for women with and without ADD who have this symptom. And like I said, women with ADD are more likely to have the symptom. So
0: you've gotten through perimenopause and you get to menopause, um, your periods have stopped and, and then it gets even worse. Is that what I'm hearing? Is there anything that can be done at this point when we're feeling like, you know, the other stuff that
1: we used to do isn't working. Okay. That's um, not been well mapped out. And I wanted to add the other group because it's relevant to answering this question. The other group that uh, comes in in the perimenopausal women are neurotypical women. And many of them are neuro, you know, there, there is no ADD there never was who all of a sudden have these cognitive problems and they, often get diagnosed with what's called adult onset ADD. It's just never been diagnosed, never warranted consideration. And then with perimenopause, it comes up with um, big flags. Uh, Most of the research that can guide the response to your question comes from that latter group. There is no research, none, that tells us anything about women with ADD and how they do in in menopause and perimenopausal women and what interventions might work. So this is all based on the very small literature regarding neurotypical women who complain of cognitive problems and what interventions have worked with them and my own thinking and that of others, you know, who are just troubleshooting the the question. So it's not very science-based and it's more um, inferential. Anyway, so, uh, with regards to those women, those neurotypical women, they have found that the stimulants, that the class of medications used for ADD can be helpful. We know that can be helpful. So one of the first, inter- we know that can be helpful for ADD women, and now it's for women who are diagnosed or have the symptoms late in life. Problem is that we have this issue with the hormones fluctuating or no longer being there. I mean, one of the first and easiest things to do in menopause or after menopause is to increase the level of the stimulants. Mm -hmm. During perimenopause, it's not so straightforward because you have those fluctuations. So sometimes they help and at other times they're too much and you're overstimulated, so it's trickier. The other interventions, pharmacologic interventions that are not at all, to my knowledge, have not been applied to the perimenopause is hormonal intervention, meaning some way to either stabilize the underlying estrogen profile or supplement the diminishing or diminished estrogen pl- profile. That's tricky. A, because no psychiatrists will play with hormones because they say I have no training in it. I mean, rightly so. At this point, they have not been trained. So they say go to your OBGYN problem there is that OBGYNs, they vary in terms of their willingness to do that. And it's interesting, all of the early literature on the effect of estrogens on thinking and cognition and mood regulation actually comes from the OBGYNs. They were the one who did the research and told the world. Nevertheless, they're still not all that comfortable intervening in cognitive things because that's not what they're trained in. Mm -hmm. Um, So the two, you know, the three disciplines, because psychologists are not that knowledgeable either yet, have not come together, but they will. But right now they haven't come together. All that said, if you can find a psychiatrist who will send you to an OBGYN who is willing to do this or who is willing to maybe do it themselves, estrogen supplementation or leveling out with birth control pills is one way to go. The caveat in that is um, that uh, a lot of women have a risk or an increased risk for breast cancer. And a lot of breast cancer is sensitive to estrogen. So that's tricky. I mean, if you have a family with a high uh, base rate of uh, breast cancer, particularly those with the BRCA gene, it's hard to know what to do. Or if you decide to do it because nothing else has worked, you got to have really close monitoring. I'm not saying throw it out and it's not an option, but you have to have really close monitoring.
0: So when you talk about this, is it, are you referring to HRT or is this, is this something different? Because would you say that HRT can help with your ADD symptoms if you are going through a sort of, a typical menopause, and if you've been managing your, your lifestyle, and maybe you've had medication, or maybe you just manage your ADHD through, you know, lots of lifestyle interventions, would you recommend HRT to help with the ADHD symptoms?
1: Oh, for sure. That's what that's when I said estrogen replacement uh, treatments. That, oh, okay, that's the same. Same, okay. same thing. I'm sorry about that. HRT stands for hormone replacement therapy. And the hormone that they're replacing is estrogen. Okay. So all the all the concerns that I was expressing um, apply that uh, psychiatrists are unfamiliar, OBGYNs may not be comfortable using it for cognitive complaints, and psychologists are not yet all that aware so that they can make the recommendation in either direction. So hormone replacement therapy is a great, great way to go. The only... Women, where there's research to back this up, are women who uh, either are postmenopausal or women who've um, naturally postmenopausal or women who've had their ovaries removed and abruptly develop premature menopause. And the findings are variable in terms of whether it helps or not. It helps some things and not other things. And the concern is that increased risk for breast cancer and uterine cancer, but especially breast cancer. So hormone replacement therapy is definitely an option, but you got to get the doctor who's willing to do it. And you have to monitor, even if you're not at increased risk, the possibility of of breast cancer. So the stimulants in complement with some form of estrogen or hormone replacement therapy, is a good way to go. If none of those work, uh, another uh, option that there is no to my knowledge science or very little for is um, Aricep or the the class of drugs that increase the availability of acetylcholine in the nervous system. The reason that's relevant is acetylcholine is really important for memory. So drugs of that class of which Aricep is the first might help. It's worth a try. They're pretty benign. There's no, to my knowledge, if you can tolerate them, there's no long-term effect to worry about. So they're worth trying. And some people have anecdotally uh, tried Aricep with ADD years and found good, good results for some of them. Hello.
0: So I would just love to say a big thank you to all of you for reaching out recently with your really heartfelt messages and emails and reviews of the show. It's really blown my mind what's happened during the past two months since launching the podcast. And this has included helping me get onto the new and noteworthy section on Apple Podcasts and in the health and fitness charts as well. And what I'm actually hearing from so many of you is how needed this content is and how these conversations have been helping you so much to understand yourselves after all these years. And I really do get it. And if that is the case... I've got something you are going to find really helpful. I've created a free guide to support you before and during your diagnosis and beyond. So if you are waiting for an assessment or waiting for this diagnosis and just don't know where to begin and need some help sort of practical and emotionally, I want to be able to give you this guidance. So I've created a brilliant resource for anyone needing more help navigating the complex area of a new ADHD diagnosis and in the guide I've given you lots of tips including books to read and other podcasts to listen to so just head to my website which is coachingbykate.me.uk and you'll find it all there on the home page or just head to the show notes and I will put a link to it And please don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast because every single week I'm trying to get you the most topical conversations with some brilliant guests, offering you lots of information about your new understanding on ADHD. So thank you again for joining me and let's get back to this week's conversation. See, what's interesting is that you are, you're giving so much information here that in England, you know, if we went to our GP and at the moment, you know, during covid our gps our time is so stretched anyway and if we go in and we it feels like we're very limited with you know being able to get to the next step and i know you mentioned about finding what we would have as, as a gynaecologist you know or a, or it would be our gp that would be um prescribing hrt and it would potentially you know, the psychiatrist would be obviously be um diagnosing and titrating for adhd But I actually spoke to a menopause doctor here based in the UK and um, she was a GP, but she's now gone on to do training specifically to be like a private menopause doctor that will, you know, give a full full consultation and then be able to sort of take you to the next steps, do all the testing and then take you through to HRT. And I asked her about ADHD. And she said, actually, this is an area that she's very interested in. And she's seeing because there is this this new wave of diagnosis of women, especially sort of, it seems that, you know, in their 40s and 50s, so that the perimenopause and menopause are there and they're looming. She's recognising there is a need to have information about the two so she can co-prescribe or blend them together. So there's, it's, they're on a, a journey where the menopause is being looked after, but also their ADHD. And this is something that I definitely would be considering further down the line, because I see how my hormones are fluctuated. I never got on with birth control ever. I noticed such a horrendous change in my behavior and personality that I was on it for about six months, and I've never been on it since. So and, I, and again, I never made the connection in between that and ADHD. It was just okay. I just clearly am very hormonally sensitive. So that means that I can't. But I've also noticed that my PMS can be quite bad. And the two weeks after my ovulation is also where I'm typically snappier, moodier. And it feels like I have two only two good weeks of the month, if, if I'm being lucky. Possibly 12 days of the month where I'm feeling really like myself. And then it just, you know, dips. So, you know, obviously I'm a health coach and I've trained in lots of different modalities. So I'm, I'm very knowledgeable. I'm also passionate. So I I'm also very interested in discovering different ways. So different things that I've I do is make sure I'm always out walking in nature. I prioritize my sleep, food, nutrition is really important. I go cold water swimming because I've noticed that really helps boost my mood. So many different parts of my week and my day is I contribute um, I, I, to my well-being. I have to. It's almost like my priority, and then everything else follows suit. But there's a lot of women out there that don't do what I do for a living. Haven't got the interest or the passion. Don't have probably the time, and, and maybe aren't um, you know fortunate to be able to work part time. All these different factors. That it feels like you know we're on the back foot a little bit, aren't we, as women, where we're, we're battling the hormones alongside the ADHD. Would you say that you see this with some of your patients that they are leaning towards their lifestyle to, to help because perhaps the doctors and the, the drugs aren't quite working for them?
1: It's certainly something I recommend, uh, you know, all the things and I'd say of all the things that you're talking about, the easiest and maybe most important is sleep. So even the women who don't have time to exercise and don't have the inclination, they're not foodies, to, to do much in the way of um, modulating and monitoring their diet, sleep is something we all need to focus on. So that that's something that can make a big difference. Uh, in fact, some people go so far as to say that ADD is a sleep disorder because the sleep problems predate and post-date and problems with sleep kind of weaves through ADD at different stages in life. That said, it's hard to deal with sleep. But I'm just saying, if you're going to do alternative things, that's one of the most effective. Again, I'm, I'm somewhat inclined towards the pharmacologic or naturopathic pharmacology interventions. There are lots of things that are good for uh, mood regulation. SAMe is very good for depression. It's like SAMe with capital letters and then a little, so it's like same with the first three letters capitalized. That That's very good for depression. I do not know that it's been found to be uh, that good for mood regulation. And it since it has kind of a stimulant property, um, it might, I don't know of any research that addresses the question, but logically it, it should affect attention as well. Then I would talk to your holistic naturopathic doctor about other things that, uh, other interventions might work for mood regulation, and even attention. Exercise has unequivocally been found uh, to improve the uh, attention regulation problems with ADD. Only problem with exercise though, is that it only lasts for a little bit after the actual exercise, during the exercise and for a short window of time afterwards which is very good for people who um, you know you hear about athletes who have a history of add and yet they function well well they're they're medicating themselves with with their exercise so to the extent that people can do that that's a really good way to treat add with or without concern about the hormones so you exercise more during menopause and perimenopause which would be good for you um so sleep exercise uh Executive function remediation using all the supports that you may have started developing when before you became perimenopausal or before you noticed that you had ADD. Things like using a planner, things like you know, managing your time, using a calendar, organizing your life, organizing your spaces, organizing your structures, the rhythms of your life. All of those things will help not remediate. By that, I mean they don't help it go away but they help supplement and support you so that you can function better. All right, so we have executive function remediation, supplements, exercise, sleep. What would you say
0: about um I mean I'm uh, an EFT practitioner, which is emotional freedom technique and I specifically work with ADHD women because i find that the tapping is is a very calming technique for ADHD it kind of helps clear the mind it removes um over, helps to remove overthinking it releases negative self talk it's i find that probably every single client i've had that i use eft with is um, always feels lighter calmer with more clarity at the end of a session. What do those letters stand for? So EFT is emotional freedom technique. We're utilizing the acupressure meridians in our body. And we're also using kind of like Western psychology type talk therapy. EFT has now got a lot of evidence um, and scientific backed research. Dr. Peter Stapleton, she's an amazing doctor in Australia. And she has got a website called Evidence-Based EFT. And she is go- doing loads of clinical trials, all done by the scientific books, alongside doctors, all the, you know, ticking all the boxes, getting lots of funding. And they're seeing amazing results. It's highly effective. They, they You can see it reduces the cortisol in the body by up to sort of 50% in, in an hour, just, you know, doing the tapping and the talking. And that, for me, I, I went into that because I saw how calming it was for me and how it was almost like you know parting of the sea of all loads of thoughts going on in my head but then once i started the tapping and the talking you get very um very focused and you're able to just kind of hone in on one subject and really like understand where that's come from so it's very much kind of peeling away layers and releasing quite a lot of stuff. It's it's fascinating. And that's why I love this subject, because, you know, someone like you, who is so eminent in your field with so much, you know, so many years, there's just so much still coming out of different, lots of anecdotal evidence, which is obviously what, where I come from. I'm not, you know, doing any trials. I just see it in my, my clients, I see it in focus groups that, you know, on online and, and things like that. So yeah, I just wondered what your
1: opinions were on, on this type of thing. It sounds like EFT is uh, well on its way to moving from fringe to mainstream. So it, it, it sounds very interesting. And thank you for telling me about it, because I'm going to learn more about it. Going back to the other DBT techniques, I wanted to comment on it first of all the breathing and the meditation and the mindfulness are both techniques that either live within they didn't start there but but they're kind of central uh, they're both i think yoga techniques eastern techniques in any case um the person who founded dbt kind of pulled together existing techniques from various places i but i wanted to talk about mindfulness for a second. First of all, there is again for those that are interested, there is definitely evidence where they look at functional MRIs, they look at the brain functioning, and they find that there is a definite response in every people in all people for mindfulness, but that um, seems to be disproportionately ADD or this disproportionately helped by it. Then you have the problem with how do you do mindfulness when it requires kind of sitting still and you're hyper. Um, for that, I really recommend the moving meditation techniques, something like Tai Chi, where you're focusing and you're meditating as it were, but you're moving. So you don't have to worry about how do you contain the exercise? I mean, the the hyperkinesis or restlessness if you don't have full-out hyperkinesis. Um, and your mind can get restless. It It also helps you when they say clear your mind, how do you clear your mind when you know, you're know you're affected by everything that's around you and it triggers all sorts of things? When you're doing moving meditation, your mind is focusing on the movement and executing it correctly. So that deals with the, it clears your mind because it's focusing your mind on one thing. Mm-hmm. And it's also good for with uh, mindfulness, you're encouraged to focus on the here and now. And the moment, again, the moving meditation helps you do that because you're focusing on the movement, how you're reacting to the movement, that sort of thing. Then what you talked about earlier, uh, is the being in nature, that's not specific to ADD. That's just, we find it's extremely helpful. Even photographs of nature, even paintings of nature, uh, even looking out a window at your garden is, is helpful. So... Yeah. All those things. My reaction to all those things is, I think they're terrific and exciting, and I look forward to seeing how they evolve over time.
0: Yeah. Now, this honestly has been so interesting because I think the more we know as women about this, we we can be empowered to make choices, and we can either go down the, the medical pharmacological route, or we can look for more lifestyle interventions that that could, you know, help. Or combine the two, and just see what works for you. So the more the more we can have these conversations and bring awareness to them is fantastic. I just wanted to thank you so much. Can you tell people where to find you? Do you see members of the public, or are you just um, academic?
1: No, no, no. I see. I, I principally uh, see people. Most of my time is spent being clinical, and I also obviously do research. Um, I can be reached. Directly at my email. That's what I prefer people to do, which is Jeanette, J-E-A-N-E-T-T-E dot. The dot is very important. Wasserstein, W-A-S-S-E-R-S-T-E-I-N at gmail.com. Yes, I do actually do remote work with, with people. So I can certainly talk to them and explore the possibility of working with them if it seems appropriate by video, like we're, like we're not doing now, but like you and I are doing now. Um, and I can talk to them by email. So, yes, thank you for asking about that. Um,
0: and your website is, um, is the Central Nervous System Support website. And I had a look at that before, and I think that's a great resource as well. For people to understand a little bit more about your work what you do and again all the research that you've you've done and you've written you've contributed to books you've written articles so i would definitely urge people to to go and have a look at your work because it's it's fascinating and it's grounded in so many years of academic research thank you so much for this conversation i know that um i got a lot out of it and i'm sure
1: the listeners have as well thank you and i've got a lot out of our conversation as well so thank you so that's today's
0: episode done did what we talk about resonate with you i really hope you found some takeaways that may inspire you to make some small changes that enhance your daily life And if you did find this episode insightful, please do consider sharing it. Knowledge and awareness is power, especially with ADHD. You can also head over to the show's Instagram page, which is ADHD Women's Wellbeing Pod, and join the community that's waiting for you there. And if this episode really did strike a chord, please do consider leaving us a review to enable more people who need to hear these conversations, find the show. Thanks so much for joining me today and see you next time. Mood regulation, emotional well-being and brain health are always at the top of my priority list. So taking daily measures such as movement, breath work, tapping, drinking water and eating nourishing food has a huge impact on my personal emotional regulation and yet sometimes we do need supplements to help us feel at our optimum. So as a health coach or well-being coach and understanding ADHD a lot more, I know how important a blend of essential fatty acids, such as omega-3s and 6s, can be. And for that reason, I take Equizin capsules every day. Now, Equizin are fatty acid specialists with a range of products to support brain function. And backed by clinical studies, Equizin supplements are a precise blend of omega-3, which contributes to the maintenance of normal brain function and are made from fish oil and omega-6 from primrose oil. Equizine's range of supplements, which are suitable for all members of the family, from adults to children, contain a balanced formula to really help get the natural benefits of fish oils without the fishy taste. So, to get discounted Equizine products for all the family, head to boots.com, that's boots.com, and enter the discount code Kate15, so that's Kate15, to get 15% off all Equizine supplements. And for more information about Equizin and all their products, head to the website equizin.co.uk that's equizin.co.uk and learn how you can be supported more on your ADHD journey.